Thank you very much, everyone, for, for tuning in. This is uh, another Leading Your International Schools podcast, the show that brings you, hopefully, practical steps to make your leadership journey uh, and possibly, for, for today's guest, a, a startup journey, a memorable one and also effective one. So this is all about uh, ethical leadership, opportunity, sustainability, and finding those uh, tricks of the trade and those secrets that people have been doing this and doing this well around the globe can hopefully reveal today. So remember, we are uh, supported here at Leading Your International School by TRC Recruitment. This is an organization that's been helping qualified teachers and leaders find the right international school jobs for nearly 20 years. And they work exclusively with leading international schools to find the best teachers and schools uh, leaders from around the world. Today, I'm very excited uh, to have Greg with us. Um, and the, the CV that uh, I've got here, um, I, I mean, I don't know if I should read it all out because you've just done so much. So Greg, co-founder and CEO of Global Services and Education, you set up and operate schools around the world, um, education management company, but you also provide school improvement, teacher training, development, and uh, I mean, a range of services. I've got a huge list here to, to help international schools. The, the unique niche, though, is the ability to be the bridge between education and business. And I think that is a, a real sticking point, especially for people when they're, when they're starting up their schools. Also, as a keynote uh, speaker, um, uh, talking about critical thinking, language development, leadership, uh, expertise in startups, um, it goes on and on and on. And I, I think we'll, we'll just get straight into it. So, I mean, Greg, can we, can we start off and, and just for for the people listening just outline how did you get into this where does it all come from how did you start in in your international school journey well thanks mary um yeah as you'll as people will know quickly from my accent i am australian and um my wife oh, congratulations by the way um fair play ashes went back home, uh, home to australia um <laughs> uh, I, I thought the series was amazing so sorry yep go on cricket fan um, no um yeah so um, my wife shanna and um, co-founder of our company and uh, my wife is um american and um we first uh launched our company after uh, meeting each other in dubai and uh i guess for both of us dubai was our first step out of our home countries we were experienced um heads of school in our home countries and I guess what we found was we were excited about international education, but what we found that there was a growing demand for expertise. And we were getting contacted by investors and developers that said, look, we want to move into this space. We want to move into international education. Primarily, I guess they were motivated by money and opportunities, but we don't have the expertise. And I guess we saw a really big gap there. The truth is um, good schools are only great schools if they're led by educators as well as having that strong business arm as well and what you alluded to before is an important two parts of the uh of the recipe so we moved into this space by leading projects in uh, india we lived in china for eight years um we uh, lived in malaysia for six years we've led projects now in 26 different countries of the world um ranging from small to large and our largest project had a budget of 300 million dollars so yeah, we've. Um, I guess we. I was a teacher who now sits in a different kind of chair, and I speak to you today from Riyadh, where we've got a lot of things happening in Saudi Arabia. That's fantastic, the, and I think Riyadh is 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 one of those areas I think in international education that seems to be booming, and I see it happening in India and Vietnam, in in Saudi. Um, are these are these the key areas where you're seeing the most growth? For I mean, because we're the people are always kind of following, seeing where new schools are, are erupting. 
Yeah, certainly Saudi Arabia is the new is the new space that's um, rapidly expanding. Um, we do draw comparisons with China. I mean, it might seem like a strange comparison, but we were in China back in 2010, and that when that was rapidly growing, we see the same kind of things happening in Saudi Arabia. International schools did pretty well in the past in Saudi Arabia, in spite of maybe the quality not being that great. And we see the same thing is going to happen in Saudi Arabia, where you're going to have rapid, rapid growth, and some operators might do pretty well no matter how good they are uh, and then what will happen is the bubble will burst and only the only the good will survive long term so saudi's huge vietnam's expanding rapidly we've done a lot of work in in saudi arabia uh, sorry in um in vietnam and the other areas in japan and korea where we also have some projects also and and of course africa fantastic so so talk me through the the process because this is i mean this is interesting for me as well as kind of on the education side how what's how does it start and how does this process work from maybe someone picking up the phone to you to you know someone turning the the key in the lock and children running into a building what's that what's that like where does it begin what do you need at the very beginning to kind of launch this these projects yeah so initially we are made People make contact with us. Usually they're an investor or developer, as I said, and they want to move into this space. And what we do is we start off with a market research and feasibility process. It's a study that's quite comprehensive. Um, it creates a report of about 200 plus pages that includes a whole lot of data, but a, a lot of analog analysis of the market. So commonly someone will say, hey, um, I want to set up a new school in Ho Chi Minh City. And they might have a plan for what kind of curriculum it should be, but they're not quite sure. So we do a deep dive and research about the whole market. And we try to understand, you know, econo uh, socioeconomic factors, what's happening with the economy, what's happening with growth of population. We, we analyze the other schools, who the market competitors are going to be, what type of schools are they? Are they British, American, IB? Are they succeeding? Are they not? What are the parents' perceptions about them? We look at the, the marketing strategies, like how are schools marketing to the public, what's working, what's not working. Um, we look at um, obviously the financial aspects, what it's going to cost. Um, so, so it's a real deep dive um, at the report level of the market and trying to determine what the best school is going to be for that location. Because people will say, I want to have a British school. And we say, well, look, first of all, are you sure that that's the right choice for that area? Because you've made that an assumption. Does that mean, you know, Harry Potter Eaton College School or what does that mean? And if it's British, for example, what kind of British school? Is it a school that focuses on science and technology or the arts? You know, so a British school is not just a British school. So that we're trying to figure out what that vision and mission will be that's going to match the market demands. And I guess I'm talking like a businessman right now. I'm an educator, but I needed to move into that space. You've got to understand like these market demands. And the other thing we do is we do a 10-year um, a financial modeling process. So we decide, we determine what it's going to cost to set up the school, to, to build the school, the PropCo, to operate the school, IOPCO, and the 10-year financial projections. And that's really important because the investor wants to use that to pull in people, but also... There's a couple of, sorry, there's just a couple of um, terms that you use there that some people might not be familiar with, PropCo and OPCO. Yeah, Can you so, just kind of explain what those are? Yeah, so schools tend to be structured um, similarly. You tend to have a prop, someone owns the property, and we call that the prop PropCo or the PropCo. Uh, property company someone owns the company so just like a hotel if you see a Sheraton hotel and you drive down the road someone owns that building but it may not be Sheraton <laughs> then then you've got yeah. Opto which is the operational company someone owns the business so someone owns the business of that school and then you've got the operator so that like in a hotel situation that's Sheraton so for us you've got someone owns a property someone owns the business of the school the Opco and then you've got the operator which is GSE 
drawing parallels again with Sheraton and, and, and Hilton and, and the hotel management model. Okay, that that that, that makes that makes more sense. So so the we've talked before about um oh, well before we get to that there is this this start point this feasibility study this discussion with the 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 people who want to set this business up is that the make or break point where you can either where you you either create success or you create something that 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 might not be successful is this the the most important stage of the whole operation because it sounds like it it sounds that if you make a mistake at this point the school is not going to be successful it's not going to go anywhere it's not going to hit what the local population want yeah absolutely it's quite crucial and you know as our company has grown and i've developed more confidence we make it mandatory now we don't move forward unless this process is completed because there's a whole range of reasons why it's essential. If you don't get the recipe right, the school won't succeed. It's just like mum and dad want to set up a coffee shop in their local community and it fails because they don't know how to run a coffee shop and maybe it's in the wrong location. Like you've got or to get everybody the- drinks tea. Yeah. It's it's yeah. What, so have, have you seen any any I mean, not naming any names, but have you seen any schools kind of not do this properly and then suffer for it later? Have you seen that kind of from your experience around the world? Oh, frequently, particularly in the fast-growing developing markets. I mean, we've had architects contact us and say that they were, an investor reached out to them and said, please build us a school. And the architect said, "Um, what kind of school? What kind of curriculum? Do you have an operator yet? And they said, oh, we don't know yet. We just just build it for us. And architects are going, wait a minute, like an IB school is different to a British school. And um, are you sure that's the best location? And how big should it be? And, you know, there's a whole range of things that they haven't yet considered, but they've got a lot of money. They want to move in quickly and they haven't considered how it actually works. They went to school once when they were kids. So they assume that that's, they've got enough knowledge. Is that, that I find that's often a, a thing is that people have been to school. So they think they know how schools work. Um, yeah. And it's, it is, it is, I mean, and comparing it to hotels is actually, I think a really useful, useful comparison in terms of, of the operation and, and also the number of moving pieces you have to a school. Um, and often some of those are quite human, which means they're quite, um, they can, they're, they're variables that you can't count on. Um, in, in terms of, uh, we've talked about signature experiences before. Is that something that's used to, um, is that something that you tie into a local market? Is that something that you tie into the provider? How does that work? I mean, do you want to, can you explain this idea of signature experiences? Yeah. So, so we, we talk also a lot about what I call vision and mission integrity. So what it means is everyone's got a vision and mission, but rarely do schools really embrace it. So it's that sign on the wall that is good in marketing and everyone points to it, but no one knows what it means. As experienced educators, Barry, you and I can walk into any school in the world, and I guarantee within an hour, we can get a sense of what kind of school it is, how does it feel, what does it look like, is it being run very well or badly, just the tone is really, really clear. And you also know what the school's priorities are, because you can see the behaviours and you can see it on the walls and in what people do. So, uh, for example, a school might claim to be really holistic and caring about social emotional well-being and, and, and health of people and all that sort of stuff. However, they have very strict zero tolerance policies in their behavior management systems that no one's smiling. Um, you know, all the behaviors just yeah. don't match. So the concept of signature experience, we, we borrowed from industries outside education. And if you think about, say, Starbucks, if I go into a Starbucks anywhere in the world, there's going to be a whole range of experiences I'm going to have that are unique to Starbucks. So the fact that they're going to ask me my name 
and to be honest, they always get it wrong. <laughs> they ask me my name, which personalizes the experience. So if I go into Starbucks, Starbucks, I'm, I know I'm going to get exactly what I asked for. It's like McDonald's. Like the taste of the coffee is the same all around the world. And there's a whole range of experiences that re reflect the identity of who Starbucks are. So for schools, it's exactly the same. The same. I mean, there are a set of experiences that you will have in a school that need to directly reflect the vision and mission of the school. And, and they either, either will reflect it or they won't. And that's going to really have a huge amount of impact across the school culture and the school's success, academic and otherwise. Can we can we talk about example? I always love I, you know, school teachers. So we, we love examples. Yeah. I mean, can we talk about an example of I mean, we can make one up if you like and 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 kind of spitball about what a signature experience would be like for that. So, I mean what's what's a typical approach to this would you say you have a you know british school opening in country x um with a with a focus on science and technology like you mentioned earlier how would you then look to create signature experience for the parents for the students for the teachers to then kind of make it stand out and make it kind of feel um like something unique and something that follows through on its mission what's what's the approach to that Yes. So to state the obvious, um, in the initial stages of a school startup, it's pretty lonely. There's not many people at the table. So this vision and mission that we've talked about, like it hasn't been that democratic. Like there's been a, we've used the research study that I've just described. We might have talked to the owner, but we've been we've created in isolation. So you need to broaden that out. And as parents come on board, you need to talk to parents and help them and, and try to understand what it means to them. But yeah, using science and technology is probably a good example. It's a British school. We're going to care about science and technology and maybe innovation. So let me give you an example of the school in Malaysia that we set up. So we decided we wanted to have a focus on innovation because the school was located next to Technology Park Malaysia. Right. And we believed in innovation because we believe that the, you know, we talk all the time, don't we, about how the next generation is going to have jobs that haven't even been invented yet. So that means we need to have children who are highly adaptable. They need to be academically smart but being able to adapt as well to a changing world. So the school needs, if the, if the, the product or outcome of that kind of school model is that kind of child, then the classroom experience needs to reflect that. It needs to focus on, on a lot of questioning rather than just answers. It needs to be very practical. You've, you know, we've said that the school focused on science and technology and innovation. We need to make sure that all content areas are very practical in nature, that when we're exploring science or English or, or drama or whatever it might be, it has to be very practical and include components of science and technology and innovation in the practices of the teacher. So in the orientation program of the teacher, like, you know, you've employed the teacher and the teachers come on board knowing that's the school vision and mission. The orientation program is all about designing curriculum in ways that reflect that science and technology vision. We talk about the signature experiences of being in a grade three classroom with that kind of vision and mission and teachers design the, the teaching and learning strategies and experiences around that whole whole focus so it's about translating vision to practice and making sure that when I walk into a grade three classroom three or four times at least two or three times I'm going to see that signature experience in action because the teachers have completely embraced it so it sounds like a kind of signature experiences is tied into tied into culture um and so so the how how do you go about embedding that culture uh, to start with but then also 
keeping that culture extant over the following five, 10, 15 years? Does it need to be the, the same? Do you need a constant refresher? Do you need really strong early adopters? How, how do you seek to embed that and make sure that that's not something that's just, it's year one and then it turns into kind of bog standard, uh, let's forget about it and throw it out and just get the, get, get, get the textbooks out. How do you make sure that they, they maintain that, that level of, of quality approach and, and that, that experience? Yeah, good question. And it reminds me, I actually asked this same question to a gentleman called Professor Al Mamory um, back in the in the 90s, who's a Canadian um, leadership expert. And asking the same question, I said, look, if you have high staff turnover and you have a unique vision, how do you make sure that it stays alive? And he said, well, look, staff handbooks are easy. Essentially, they're the same around the world, aren't they? I mean, I yep. know they're different, but a staff handbook is boring, ugly text. I mean, we, we, we try, but yeah, essentially, it's the same stuff. Yeah. So he said, have that, that's important. But he said, you should have another manual, which basically has a title across the front that said, this is how we do business around here. And what he was meaning was, when you come to our school, this is how we behave. This is what things look like. If you have a meeting with the principal, it's not scary where they shut the door and you're intimidated to be there. It's actually genuine and authentic. And this is what relationships look like. If you walk into a classroom, this is what it looks like. There's a focus on critical thinking. When I, walk, when I look around the room, I see things like De Bono's six thinking hats and court thinking strategies. I see Bloom's taxonomy. I see Mazzano's high yield strategy. I see all those kind of things on the wall. So it's got to permeate everything. Um, it's a bit like, you know, I think, you know, we've probably all been involved in CIS accreditation, um, you know, visits and, and, and IV. When those external people walk into a school, that's what they're looking for. They're looking for demonstration of behaviors. So you've got to make sure that everything you do reflects that. Now, when I create a vision and mission, so yeah, the vision and mission is created, but then I also create what I call a guiding question that should be used in every meeting or, or situation possible. And that question is, is the decision we're going to make today or what we're doing going to move us closer or further away than the goals of our mission and vision? And if we're not doing that, then we shouldn't be doing it. We shouldn't be involved in that conversation. If the conversation is not making us better, at having an education model that's academically rigorous, but also is practical in nature and focused on science and technology, then we shouldn't be doing it. So it's really this determined, strong leadership that makes sure that we're living and breathing this set of values and beliefs that they're inculcated by that idea. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah, no, no, it absolutely does. It's, um, I think it's, yeah, I mean, to, to paraphrase, I suppose you're talking about a touchstone. Um, where every time you're having those things, it's you know it's about being people centered. Uh, same kind of idea. You know, what what are we doing? Is this actually a benefit to the children? Um, and if you could say yes, then do it. If you say no, then you know, what the hell are we doing here? Um, I mean, that's you talked a little bit about staff turnover. How how much? I mean, from your experience, because I mean, you've been operating in 26 different countries. You've traveled to over 60, and you've seen a lot of the world. Tell me about staff turnover. How, number one, how do you stop it? Uh, number two, what is the, the real impact of staff turnover? Because you talked about kind of vision and mission, but what, what from your impression, what's the, what's the impact of having too high a staff turnover on, on schools? Well, first of all, I, I frequently am in meetings or open days where parents say to us, oh, can you talk to us about your staff turnover and how long will, your, will, will the teachers be at this school? And I just don't lie. It's an international school and the teachers are going to move on. There was some data created by search associates a number of years ago. There's probably more recent data, but I remember uh, 
it's stuck in my mind that of a premium international school worldwide, the average to average uh, is about 3.2 years. So the truth is teachers are going to turn over an average of between two and three years. And we know most contracts two years. So it just is what it is and just accept it. But knowing that, I guess we do a couple of things. So first of all, what we do is that in our teacher recruitment process, wherever we possibly can, we have a process where our teachers are also involved. So what happens is that there's two to three steps in the process. So obviously there's the pre-selection process. It's pretty easy to tick those first boxes. Do you have a degree? Do you have three things experience? Well, but okay, done. Yeah. Thanks very much for your beautiful CV you spent you know trillions of hours on, but you tick the boxes. Okay, next step. Um, leadership will, um, whoever that might be, will interview the teacher and and have that nitty-gritty tough you know conversations to identify whether that that teacher is is the right match. And then we have a panel of teachers who also interview the teacher. And we, it's very powerful because A, it's a great professional activity for the teachers because they get to experience leadership, but also they get buy-in over the, who, who the new teachers are coming into the school. And yeah. they can share real stories about the vision and make sure that the teacher coming in understands it. And those teachers are gonna be really, really good at understanding. Like if you're a grade five teacher or you're a grade 11 physics teacher, you're gonna be very good at understanding whether that teacher yeah. is faking it or whether they really can understand and embrace the vision. And so you've got those those extra steps. Um, at principal level, we involve the parents as well, of course, which is, a, which is, a, is another thing. But we use a very comprehensive process. And I guess the, next, the, the final step, of course, as I've already alluded to, is thorough orientation programs where the teachers come in and they, they really understand the vision and mission and then follow-up processes where everything we talk about in all the meetings, it's not just about hey, um, there's a meeting at three o'clock tomorrow afternoon. Like it's a, it's a, it's a meeting about pedagogy and teaching and learning that, that reflects the vision and mission. I, I, I mean, I really like that. The, uh, it, it's, it's, some, it's similar to, to what we do here, actually. Um, I, uh, it's more time for me, but I spend a lot of my time interviewing candidates. And so I will draw up a long list and then I will do kind of 20, 25 minute interviews with the long list um, just to be the honest friend as well and say look this is what this yeah. is all about this is how we do things this is what we what we need and then we move it on to 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 the staff panel who then really go to town on yeah the nitty-gritty can you do it you know do you have the experience what's your and and also do they want to work with these people and yeah. let those you know potential colleagues see these are the people you're going to be working with so there's a i think honesty and openness in in that that process is is absolutely vital um how in terms of the 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 staff turnover um is it the contract that the because a lot of international schools will work on a contract basis and here we we went back and forth about this and we actually work on a on a, a full-time job basis so we employ people under spanish law um full-time jobs um with all of the requisite protections under spanish law is is that something that's not done typically um around the world or is it is it is there there a, a focus more on on having contracts for international staff because it's what they want yeah thanks for that i i um i hadn't yet mentioned about you know retaining staff and how best to do that like i i, I guess standard contract in international schools tend to be two years and I think that contract's really important. But I often say, even when I'm creating a contract to set up a brand new school, I mean, contracts are important and we put should put time and energy into them, but we should never touch them again because they're just a piece of paper that we've agreed to the terms. But after that, it's about principles rather than policies. You know, it's about what are the values and attributes of the school that we're going to live by. So, for example, you know, um, 
you know, yeah, we, we don't, the truth is, we don't open that handbook again to decide on how to deal with a problem at school, do we? We deal with it because that we, we have a set of values that that reflect maybe what's been written. And so the truth is, um, how do you keep good teachers? It's not money. It's not money. I mean, of course, money is important, but increasing um, teacher salaries doesn't necessarily keep a teacher at your school longer because sometimes it doesn't matter how much money you pay a teacher, if they're not happy and they don't have good management, they don't feel valued and appreciated and it's not a, well, a, a worthwhile place to work, they won't stay. So some of the greatest schools in the world, I won't quote them, but they don't pay that well. But teachers love to work there because they're incredibly rewarding. Teachers are interesting, interesting um, you know, human beings. We, we really do care a lot about the workplace and having a place that we really feel valued and um, I've, I've got a, I'm, I'm presenting at a conference in the next couple of weeks. I'm still trying to work out what my topic will be, but one of the things I'm going to probably talk about is what's the key factor of a successful school. It's the principal. It's you and me. It's the leader. Because although we might think the most important person in the school is the teacher, teachers don't perform well under poor leadership. They will change schools. They will perform badly. doesn't matter how good they are. They're not going to come to school with a smile on their face. So, I think teachers stay at a school because they feel valued and appreciated professionally and they've got good leadership that that gets things out of the road. I've always felt my role as a leader is to remove the obstacles so teachers can get on and do the job they're really good at. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's, um, I think, uh, yeah, being a bit of a bulldozer and clearing the path for the kids, for the parents and for the teachers is, um, and also jumping in front of the, you know, you know, whatever's coming in that, that that their way, I think is is definitely part of that job. But also, yeah. I think um, you know, um, teacher agency, student agency is is absolutely vital there. And being uh, there was um, it's that uh, Amazon Web Services is a story I, I'm always fond of, where because it's one of the biggest companies in the world. And Amazon, when they were coming up with new ideas, there was this kind of process of. Um, you say yes to an idea if you can't think of a reason to say no. And it just, they kept saying, well, okay, yes, 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 yes. And I think if you take that attitude with with students and with, with your colleagues, then you end up actually enabling them, giving them agency and, and creating things in your school that maybe no one else has seen and giving that signature experience something you know, even, even greater. Um, what about the parents? I mean, how do you find kind of working with parents when you're setting up a new school? Do you bring them in early? Do you try to encourage kind of, you know, uh, early adopters to become net promoters or do you keep them at arm's length until you've you've got the, the school set up? Yeah, look, they're incredibly important and it's tough in the early days because what will commonly happen, if I can use China as an example, um, when we were in China, we found parents particularly challenging because what had happened is they'd signed up for this international education experience and they were very excited about it and they felt that if they send my child to this school, they're guaranteed to go to Cambridge and they're going to have this incredible educational pathway. And then at the end of the first two weeks, they said, why doesn't my child have five hours homework every month? Um, why is my child not crying on a Saturday morning because they failed their, their exam because they've got exams every Saturday morning. So you've got this, this real gap because we shape our perceptions based on past experience. So the parents might've said, oh, I'm signing up for international education, but the only experience of education they've had is their own, which is 50 kids in a classroom. It's incredible ex excessive homework and, and weekend exams, et cetera. So you really have to help parents understand what international education is like. So it's about workshops and training, helping bring them in. The other thing that we do is we have a very open door policy. And 
and I know I'm going to reference back to that vision of mission integrity, but many schools say they have an open door policy, but they don't. You can't get to the administration. You can't get to the principal. They're far too busy and they've got people blocking, blocking the way. And, and to me, that's often about insecurity. It's a, it's a leader who's insecure. They, they won't accept criticism or they're not open to putting themselves in that risky situation where a parent might challenge them publicly. And that's not authenticity. So we'll run what we call director's round tables, like once a month, where parents can come along on a Saturday morning for a cup of tea and there's no agenda. And people think we're crazy. How would you, why would you possibly bring parents across, along to a meeting every once, once a month on a Saturday, open the agenda and they can ask anything they want on the floor and you have to answer? It's because that's what we said our vision and mission is. It's about open door. So parents are allowed to come and talk to us and they're allowed to have a chat and have input and ideas. And, and we're okay to be put on the spot because a good school isn't perfect. We'll sometimes give less than perfect answers. We'll sometimes get things less than correct. But parents want that. They want authenticity. And I think you can demonstrate that by being truly open. I, I 100% behind you. I think parents can be a school superpower if you use them yeah. in the right way. Um, yeah. They're net promoters in terms of marketing, in terms of the, the experience they give the students, especially later on. Um, our parents here at the Global College are, are absolutely amazing. So we had a um, parent seminar um, uh, series last year and the, the parents would come in to spend 20 minutes talking about what they do and how they got there and then just talking to the kids and they're just get, getting them connected. And I think it's, you know, schools are that collection of relationships. And I think you're absolutely spot on with, with just yeah, open doors, get them in, ask any questions you want and i try to do the same um here but it's um you know sometimes I, I don't think i'm as successful um but uh and i think my wife might shoot me if every saturday i was in school uh, doing a round table but the it's a i think it's it's that openness and authenticity that we all strive for and i think that's that's you're absolutely spot on with that that i think the harder part i think once you get beyond um the the parents the students your colleagues is when you're looking at owners and investors and the because you know, in in schools we always have to look to you know, so the, the the people who are financing the operation who are behind the you know maybe behind the vision maybe behind the mission it could be a school in the UK for whom we're a you know subsidiary it could be an investor who's local it could be a um, a big uh, uh, investment company uh, that obviously we've got these larger school groups now and it's uh, it's you know an investment company or a property company behind it how's the relationship with them? Is that something that can kind of sway things one way or the other? Can it make it very positive? Can it make it very negative? What's your experience with, with those owner, yeah. owner CEOs? We work really, really hard at that. And we, and we say it, I mean, we just signed a new contract um, in the last, um, in the last week. And I said to the owner of this new con in this new contract, I said, look, I'm glad we've got that contract out of the way. Cause now we can get down to business and really get to know each other and work authentically together and effectively because the truth is I have to have a really authentic and strong connected relationship with that owner so they trust me so when I say we need to purchase that item they need to trust that I'm making a good call and that I'm not just chasing extra funds and the rest of it so I've got to have a deeply connected um, relationship with them I also have to help them understand the education industry which is likely to be very different to what they've experienced before um, managing foreigners in a developing country is really tough for local people. It's not so tough for me or, or you because we are foreigners and we've been doing this a long time, but how you manage foreigners in Vietnam, China, Saudi Arabia, 
is, is very unique and you have to take a lot of care about it. And the owner may not understand why that's important that the teacher gets paid exactly on time as promised, that they've got hot, hot water in their apartments, that all those things, you know, that, that they can buy the shampoo they want or the lotion or, or all those kind of things. It's really important. So we spend a lot of time helping the owner understand the education industry, helping them understand that we have some cultural differences in play here. There's culture difference between you and me and all of us. And we've got to navigate that together. So I, I work I work really, really hard at that. And I think it's my most important job in where I spend most of my time now. Um, I don't read books about other cultures. I just listen. You know, I, I didn't read any books in China. I know there's thousands of books I could have read, but I didn't. I just tried to identify what I knew to be similar and not different. You know, and the truth is, different religions, be it Islam, Christianity, whatever, different cultures. We're all the same at the grassroots. You've just got to be able to see what's same and know that the behaviors might be sending unusual signals, but they are all the same. So yeah, um, the other thing, if I just add to that too, is just the different perspectives on business versus education, because the truth is it is a very different way of thinking. And um, I think I can bridge that gap pretty well now. Um, a businessman is not going to be successful if we don't have high quality education outcomes for kids. But similarly, that school's not going to run well if the business sides run badly, because that's paying your wages, the salaries, it's keeping the school alive. You've got to have a balance across both. And, and I hate to generalize, but educators are terrible at business and business people are terrible at education. And we can get better at it over time, but that's not what I was trained in university. And it takes a lifetime of experience to bridge that gap. No, I, I 100%. It's, um, I think the, I think one of my favorite uh, words of the last 10 years has been frupidity. So <laughs> this, this idea of, yeah, we're going to save some money here, but actually the, the knock on is it, it damages staff confidence, damages parent confidence, damages student outcome. So it's this, this idea of where is the money well spent? And I think that that's, um, that's something where educators need I think possibly more business training and the, the guys on the business side need perhaps more education training to, in order to, to allow them to see both sides. And I think the being able to have those conversations, not just with, you know, principals and CEOs and you know, it, at that point, but rather the teachers to have those conversations, I think is a, is a really important part. Can, in your experience, can teachers kind of step up to that and start to appreciate how this works especially if they've come from a state education system? Yeah, I think they can in time. I think they're, if they're open to it, they can in time. Um, it really just is, is helping them understand. I mean, sadly, many educators cringe at the idea of believing that schools are business. But the truth is some of the, Eden College has more money than you could imagine, but they're a non-profit organization. So whether it's non-profit or profit, we're still, we're still the same animal. Um, I think we can help teachers understand that. It's just about having open conversations. And if I want to give you an example, because I have this conversation regularly. So let's say we're trying to construct a salary package for teachers. And let's say that our budget is, I'm just going to make up, let's say it's 50,000 US dollars per year. And the, the owner says, I don't think we should pay for teacher accommodation. Um, I think that they should pay for it themselves. And I don't think we should pay for medical expenses. And I say, okay, just understand that in a teacher's mind, if you offer them a package for $50,000 and it doesn't include accommodation, it doesn't include travel, it doesn't include medical, they're not going to be com real comfortable. But let me present this to you in a different way. Let's pay the teacher $43,000 a year plus a whole range of other package inclusions that add up to $7,000. 
So the whole package costs $50,000, but the teacher's completely satisfied. So there's a good example of a different way of thinking. The businessman shouldn't care. His budget's 50,000, but the mm -hmm. teacher's gonna care because when they apply for the job, they wanna see teacher salary, flights home, medical insurance, accommodation. Done, I'm happy. But I've had experiences where I lost that argument with an owner. They packaged it all in. The teacher was angry and upset for two years and they left and went to another school. So I guess in the early days, I learned the psychology of how this works, businessman versus um, educator. And I think that's probably one of, the, some of, one of the examples I've given to teachers frequently. Same thing about pension fund superannuation. Not all schools offer that. Well, offer it, 48 plus two. You know, it, you know, that's just one example of helping teachers understand the business side of how things work. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you talked earlier about, about that. I mean, the at the the management end in terms of you know the importance of of leadership what what is it that makes a good i mean a what makes a good principal or director or headmaster or headmistress and what makes a good startup principal headmaster headmistress are the two the same or is that are these two kind of different animals look um look in terms of like what i think a great principal looks like in leadership i mean look obviously they have to be an educational leader I mean, you are the educational leader of the school. So you have to understand education. You've got to be able to have conversations about Mazzano, Bloom's taxonomy, high yield strategies. You've got, to, you've got to be an educational leader. Otherwise, you have no credibility with staff. So you also have to have great interpersonal skills. You have to have the ability to connect with people and solve problems in a meaningful way. You have to be secure. I hate bullies. I hate, I hate the principal that stands up and is angry and yells because it shows insecurity. The, bully, the bullying kind of loud behaviors are designed to push people away because they're insecure themselves. If you are a secure person, you're happy to draw people in and have this open conversation about what went right, what went wrong, not. So that's my quick snapshot about leadership to me. In terms of school startups, look, it is really different. Um, I've met educational leaders of incredible experience that would be terrible in a startup because they're just not um, down to earth. They don't understand the business side well enough. The truth is educators don't know anything about marketing. Educators are really good at, at selling the vision and mission of the school and talking about the school in passionate ways, but principals don't know about SEO or how to generate leads or how to convert leads into, into enrollments. I mean, it's just a totally different space. So yes, you can learn that, but if you put a a purely academic educational leader in a startup position who doesn't understand any of those things, it's a really steep learning curve. The other thing is too, like, to be honest, some parts of my life are really glamorous. Like I, I sometimes meet with incredibly powerful leaders, wealthy billionaires. I meet with government diplomats, but you know what? Sometimes I'm cleaning toilets, you know, like it really is like that. I mean, we, we have a school, we had, a, we did a project in Palestine and I did a five hour um, land border crossing from Jordan to um, to Palestine to Ramallah, where we were working on a school project, and then the next day I'm meeting with government leaders. Um, it's such a you know I've also landed in a foreign location where I don't know the language, and I've got to print off a 200 page document and get it bound and and make it beautiful for a presentation the next day. And I I've got to figure out how to do that. I don't have a PA. I don't have a private driver. I don't have all those things that some elite principals might be feel they're entitled to. So it's a startup. It's a startup business. And so you've got to be an educational expert and talk the pedagogy and curriculum learning and all those things. But you've also got to be able to clean toilets and figure out how big 
um, that classroom should be and how to buy resources and how to navigate that cultural difference with a person of another language that you don't understand. How, how I mean, this is one of my, my pet kind of projects, uh, language. How, how important is language for people coming into a new school, a new environment? Yeah, it's to to what extent? I mean, we're not going to pick up Arabic in six months, but how how much can how much capital can a, a teacher or a principal gain from just making the effort, starting that process? Look, I think it's really helpful in the warm and fuzzy part. <laughs> you know, like yeah, it's, oh wow, isn't that cute? They can say a couple of words in my language. That's lovely. But but the truth is, you know, unless you're super confident in that language you're not going to be particularly effective in that language. So I think it's great around building relationships and people saying, hey, they connect with my culture. I appreciate the fact that they're trying, but it's sort of cute. <laughs> that, you know, like, again, I found it interesting when I was in China, there was a whole lot of, I had a whole lot of friends that were incredibly competent um, bilingual Mandarin speakers, and that's great. But if you can't have the functional skills of being a leader or whatever it is in the industry you're working, then you're just bilingual. So I think the, the challenge with language is that we should try to learn the language and we should try to connect with other people because we've learned some. But the truth is, are you going to be able to convince a parent around a particular argument about their child and, and talk about teaching and learning and pedagogy, critical thinking? Are you going to be able to describe a rubric in their, in their home, in their native tongue? You know, you're probably not going to be able to. So I think people just need to be realistic about it because you're often going to need a translator there who understands a good translator who not only understands the language, but understands the ideas behind education conceptually so that they can translate that completely and develop a shared understanding. It's, I suppose it comes back to kind of the original thing we were talking about, which is being a bridge. So that, that finding those people who can be like you, a bridge between the, the business side and the education side, but then that bridge between, between cultures. Um, uh, final question it, where, where is i mean what's the what's the one thing you would say to people who are thinking about coming into uh, a startup school um be it a teacher be it um, you know an administrator be it a school principal what's the one piece of advice that you would you would say look this is what you need to know this is what you need to understand i think first of all you need to zoom out because we all have our passions and you've got to be careful about grabbing hold of them too tight. Because the truth is in the very earliest phase of the startup, it's a very big picture. It's a British school that cares about science technology. We're not talking about grade two classrooms yet. And we're not talking about running student-led three-way conferences yet with our parents. So you need to start out really, really big picture and understand that the school is going to deliver a product and that product's going to be a child who's going to behave and act in a particular way at, at the end of their education process and zooming out, what would that process look like? And you have to get the operational things right because you and I could sit over a cup of coffee bar and talk about all those intricate things around education for hours and we would enjoy it. But the truth is, if that teacher doesn't have those books in the classroom on day one, it doesn't matter. Yeah. If that teacher doesn't have an apartment with warm hot water, it doesn't matter. Yeah. So don't get me wrong. I'm a passionate educator who really cares about those things that are, are really cool to talk about. But you've got to get the fundamentals right. You've got to be organized. You've got to have the money in the right place. You've got to have the owner on board. You've got to have the owner not interfering with daily operations if they're not competent to do so. You've got to have all that stuff right 
And to come back to a phrase you and I shared earlier, you've got to remove the obstacles so teachers can get on and do the job they're good at. If you don't remove those obstacles, it doesn't matter what that fancy vision and values is that you've been sharing in marketing meetings. It's just not going to happen. So you, you've, got to, you've got to be well organized and focused. I think what a lot of startup leaders don't do well, I find, is they get lost. They don't know where to start. Like they're really like a deer in headlights. Like they've been in a, schools are very structured environments where you start at nine o'clock in the morning and you finish at four and it's all very structured. You've got timetables and meetings, the rest of it. Do you know what my startup looks like? I'm in an empty room in Riyadh and I've got a blank piece of paper and the owner said, hey, can you describe what our school profile is going to be for that school we're going to build in two years time? And it's just me and a piece of paper drawing on all this experience I've had and maybe chatting to colleagues and mentors, but I've got to be really independently motivated and I've got to be able to focus on the task at hand without structure. I've got to balance creativity, which it is, with business acumen and educational things as well. So I know that's probably a big convoluted answer, but I don't think people understand what school startups are like. They think it's about pioneering a brand new school and it is, but it's far more about what I just described than, than the fancy stuff. I think it was a perfect answer because it, it's convoluted, yes, but you've touched on about 15 different aspects for, for startups, which I recognize from from my experience. And I think it's it's still, for me, it's one of the most exciting things in education, but it, it does require a certain sense of, okay, you know what, let's let's get going that's 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 and just picking a place to start and, and going for it this is great this has been fantastic to talk to you thank you so much um uh, can people reach out to you if they're interested in what you're doing via linkedin via your company website yeah sure i mean um as people know uh, we're very i've got a very, uh, sort of popular profile linkedin i share we share we write we've written over 250 blogs and articles about setting up schools and education and we share that information freely and we share those via linkedin so probably my linkedin profile is the best but obviously our website as well. But I'm happy to, even if we don't have a project to discuss permanently, um, I'm happy to share ideas and talk to people about what they're doing. I sometimes talk to mum and dads who are setting up a small homeschool in a in a developing country, and then sometimes people that have a, a big project worth working together on. So I'm open to lots of conversations and happy to share. Fantastic. Greg, thank you so much. Um, we're going to end it there. Um, thank you, Greg. Thank you as well uh, to our partners, TIC uh, Recruitment, for, for uh, supporting uh, the podcast. Um, do look Greg up and, and follow him on LinkedIn and check out his uh, company pages. Um, and uh, I will see you again next month for another episode of the podcast. Um, be well, everyone, and have a great uh, autumn term uh, until we speak later. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks, Barry.